I do think about that, you know, as a person who is losing their mother, I kind of refuse to lose myself as a daughter. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, and today I'm celebrating Mother's Day with writer, explorer, and life coach Steph Jagger, author of Everything Left to Remember, My Mother, Our Memories, and A Journey Through the Rocky Mountains, which just came out in paperback. After her mother, Sheila, is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, Steph travels with her mother to Montana and around the Rocky Mountain West to make memories her mother will soon forget and to place another mother, Mother Earth, at the center of their attention. This is a memoir about mothers and mothering, about memory, inheritance, and lineage, and, as you will hear in this conversation, about surrendering to discomfort. A quick note to say that Steph and I chatted for a long time. This conversation then has been edited down from an hour and a half to 30 minutes. Steph Jagger is a sought-after mentor and life coach whose offerings guide people toward a deeper understanding of themselves and their stories. Steph grew up in Vancouver, Canada, and now lives and works on Bainbridge Island in Washington. Everything Left to Remember is Steph's second book. Her first, Unbound, was published in 2017. Steph, thanks so much for being here and welcome to The Right Question. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm elated to be here and excited for this conversation. Yeah, I'm excited too. I'm excited to have you even virtually in Montana for a bit. Your book does um, take place, much of it, in Montana. So I'm excited to have you here virtually. Um, This conversation, our conversation, will air around Mother's Day. And your book, uh, this book that we're talking about, Everything Left to Remember, is about your mother. It's about Mother Nature. It's about mothers and daughters. And you even you even write at multiple points in the book that a younger you, like maybe all daughters, uh, really resisted becoming your mother. And there's, there's a lot of complications to that, and we'll talk about those complications. Um, I'm wondering, before we talk about those complications, I'd love to know, right off the top, how are you like your mother? Oh, that is such a beautiful question. I think I am like my mother and becoming more and more like my mother um, since this journey in probably two ways. I think my mother, and I talk about this a lot in the book, has a lot of, had, has a lot of skill set in regards to being a particular energy in a room. I I talk about in the book, like she's a wolf, she's the lowest heart rate, you know, the most calm, the most steady. And as I do, you know, the rest of my work, which involves a lot of speaking, a lot of being with people, even inside of my close personal relationships, I know that there's a grounded, steady, low heartbeat presence um, that people pick up from me that I think is very much like my mother. Um, additionally, the part that I think is becoming more and more like her is I am much more comfortable and becoming more and more comfortable in spaces of relative silence. You know, she was a woman who, and I talk about this a lot as well, 
that didn't use a lot of words. And I love being in conversation. And I obviously, I'm a writer, I love words. And I'm becoming more and more obsessed with the kind of translation of the wordlessness, which involves spending a lot of time sitting in silent and wordless spaces and attempting to kind of feel into the energy there, translate that energy there. And, And I think that's my mom didn't do as much of the translation, but I think she was very comfortable in those spaces. You know, I want to talk about the person that your mother was before being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. There are so many edges in this book, um, before, after, on the cusp. Um, and so I want to talk about her before she was diagnosed. And I think an early passage in your memoir really sets the stage for the type of person and the type of mother that she was. So I'm wondering, will you read a passage that begins on page 17, beginning with her love was demonstrative, and then reading you know, mid-page of 18, this was especially so when emotions were involved, and then we can go on from there. Absolutely. Her love was demonstrative and physical. You felt it in the way she hugged you and tucked you into bed. You tasted it in the cucumber sandwiches and the birthday cakes. You smelled it in the laundry. You knew she loved you simply because she was there. I have many memories of being attached to my mother in a physical way. My arms wrapped around her waist in the morning, my face pressed up against the green velour robe she wore while filling the lunch bags we would carry off to school. Her fingers gently pulling through my wet summer hair as I sat curled up beside her on the dock. I used to watch the beads of sweat drip down her stomach before pooling in her belly button. My mother gave me her physical body, but it seemed her emotional body was only partially there. While I can tell you what joy and contentment looked like on my mother's face, other emotions seem to be missing, sorrow and grief, for example, as well as deep hurt. I cannot tell you what emotional pain looked like on the face of the woman who raised me. I could feel these things as fleeting undercurrents, but I couldn't see them on the surface of her. Words were absent too. There was no voice for her anger, no utterance of rage. My mother gave me many things, but candid conversation was not one of them. This was especially so when emotions were involved. It occurred to me that because your mother's quote-unquote love language was never verbal, really, that when Alzheimer's literally took from her her ability to find and use words, there may not have been such an early recognizable or explicit shift in her mothering to you. Of course, there would have been, you know, other symptoms apart from her dissipating speech. But I'm wondering how you sensed that shift apart from those verbal displacements. It's a gorgeous observation um, that is that is accurate, that is true. Uh, She wasn't a verbally explicit person. And so those early stages of Alzheimer's where people are missing words, missing names, um, that was more difficult to decipher with her in those early stages. The quality of her mothering, the the physical demonstrative warmth, um, that was still there. And I am, gosh, it's really miraculous that I could sit and reflect about her in the late stages of the disease still to this day and say, that's still there. You know, her ability just to sit with you in silence and stroke the top of your hand is still there. What a gift that is. 
Um, and that did make some of the earlier signs of Alzheimer's and, and cognitive decline a little bit um, different to, to pick up than say somebody who has spent their life being verbally expressive. Um, I think some of the biggest signs for me, and, and really the, the one that clicked all of the various puzzle pieces of signs into place for me was a moment that I had um, prior to her diagnosis that was a shift in her filter. Like it was actually the opposite. She is being more verbally expressive in a way that I have never heard her, that I thought something is not right here. And, and that is a fairly classic sign that a person who is really verbal or not so verbal throughout their life or anybody in between, there is a fairly classic sign of that loss of filter, that loss of social norms, that loss of, I probably shouldn't say this. Um, many, many people experience that with their loved ones in the early stages of Alzheimer's. So that that was something I noticed that was that was clicking things together. And isn't that interesting? Like the, the more I heard her voice, the more I thought, well, something's uh, not quite right here. Yeah. You write a few pages later, when officially was there more of my essence on the outside of me than remained living inside? That idea really struck me. And this question that you pose to yourself feels like a why I write question um, or a statement rather, you know, you pose it as a question. It felt like a, this is why I write um, because you learn to not voice your emotions too. You were a feeling child. You had big feelings, but because your family and specifically your mother were not, she was not voicing her emotions. You learned to do the same. You learned to not voice them um, or at least to externalize them in that way. And I'm wondering if writing then provides that outlet for that internal voice for you. I think absolutely it does. I can remember being a little girl in my um, bedroom as a child, not just in my bedroom, in the closet in my bedroom, writing stories. Like it was almost too vulnerable to just be in my room with the door closed. Someone might come into my office that that this was such a risky or taboo thing to be exploring my internal world like it would be trespassing if somebody noticed me traipsing around in my internal landscape that i had to be in the room with the door closed inside the closet with the door closed um and so so yes it it, it was a way for me to language and writing have always been a way and and reading as a little kid i read voraciously um, and, and that was always a way of attempting to kind of learn that and attempting to understand my internal world by way of the voices of others. I also think if, if I look back and I think, well, there's a little girl who's learning to understand her internal landscape by way of the voices of others. The voices of others can become, the balance of me listening to that can become um, unbalanced. And it can become a, a reliance on the external to explain things. Now we can get into the landscape of, you know, mansplaining and looking to the predominant voices to really tell me, like, is what I'm feeling accurate? Now, that's a slippery slope when we look at how that occurs inside of relationships, inside of gender, inside of uh, emotional labor landscape, inside of gaslighting, all of that, all of that. So I, I also think that writing provided me with a way to say my narrative is important, even if I'm the only one in my room in my closet that can see it and feel it as real. 
And it provided me a way to live into a sense of control, not, not to control the narrative, like my voice is so important, but it provided me a way to feel as though that was balanced, uh, that the external voices and my internal voice, that those could be in balance with one another. And I think that was really important to me as a young person and, you know, to this day. I want to talk about control, but I'm going to um, table that for just a moment because this this visual of you as a child going into your closet and feeling vulnerable enough to retreat there in the first place, um, you know, this book is all about place and the places that you ventured to with your mother, those that you write about in this memoir, I mean, could be your answer to my next question. But I'm wondering, Steph, what places bring out your vulnerability apart from your childhood closet? What places do you find that you're most yourself in um, or that you've come to know yourself to be? I'm wondering what places bring those out of you. I think this goes directly back to the question of how are you like your mother? It, it, it really has been inside of the silent places. As I get more and more comfortable in the discomfort of that, and it goes back to when I was a kid inside the room, inside the closet, that that's a closet. It's like a dark, like womb-like space. Like, okay, I'll, I want all of the noise to just disappear for a moment so I can hear myself. And so I can understand what, what the story is that's living inside of me. I think about that when I was little and I think about that in my office still to this day, you know, when I'm writing in the midst of a piece of writing, if my husband walks into my office, which is behind me, it's, it's an extra, I have a somatic experience to that, that I feel extra, even though he's not reading what's on my computer screen, I I'm deeply uncomfortable by that. And I immediately close what's ever on the computer and say like, you know, you need to leave. Um, and this goes right into my absolute love of and wish for access for everybody to our natural spaces that are wildly silent. Um, there's a place close to me here in Olympic national park that's been studied by sound ecologists. That's known as the one square inch of silence. It's um, supposed to be uh, the place in the United States with the least amount of noise pollution. I went there last year on uh, for my mother's birthday, just to kind of sit in silence. And of course, of course there's, there's noise there. There's, there's birds, there's animals, there's wind that's blowing in the trees. There's, a, there's maybe the sound of a, of a river, not too far away, you know, elk bugling, these types of things. There is, there is sound in that space, but the noise pollution is not there. And, and I think that's quintessential to me is how am I defining in my interior life, like in my mental landscape, what is noise pollution? What is chatter? What is distraction? I think about that in my online life. You know, I think about that in my lived reality just in general. And so I, I think being able to find those spaces of silence so as to hear the aliveness that's available to us is critically important for me, you know, as a human and, and as a creative, as a writer, for sure. You're listening to a conversation with memoirist Steph Jagger. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you'd like to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
for listeners, I suppose I can be transparent here, but we were supposed to have this conversation before this. They'll they'll hear it around Mother's Day, but we were going to have this conversation a month, two months ago. And I reached out to you and I said, this can't happen right now. I'm just not in the space. And I don't think this is like a, a warning for listeners that you won't be able to come to this book at any moment of your life. But at least for me, who has lost a mother, I think I really did have to come to this book um, unbraced, unclenched. I, I, I had to be in an open space um, in order to read it without like breaking down every sentence. You're Again, you're talking about writing and I'm talking about your reading experience. So I'm wondering um, if this sort of um, simultaneity exists for you with other readers as well. This is this is feedback I've I've experienced from readers on a multitude of different levels. And so, first of all, you know, when people hear about the topic of the book, oh, this is about you and your mother and her journey with Alzheimer's and dementia, you know, I'm gonna buy it for my friend. Her her mother was just diagnosed. And I I kind of immediately go like, fantastic, that's great. And maybe tell her not to read it right away. Like that person might be in an acute phase of shock and grief upon learning this news or or maybe upon the loss of a of a relative that um you know it's i have this image of this sponge getting like really tightly held up like that's that's when the water is being squeezed out not when it can absorb it hmm. and so i think about that in regards to readers who are in that place i i have also experienced feedback about the book um, or readers saying, I know I'm not ready. I'm I'm waiting for a time where I could have a bit of an expansive space where I could maybe pour myself a bath. And, and I, I agree with that. I, I am a big believer from a nervous system level, you know, that self-care, this is a Susan Raffo quote, self-care is the constant practice of ensuring more pain does not accumulate. And so if there are going to be things that are confronting in this book, you know, how do we uncoil within it? That being said, one of the most predominant pieces of feedback that I get is there was much inside of this book that cracked or broke open parts of me. And strangely, I felt held. And I think that's what I was looking for on the trip itself. I need certain things inside of me to break and crack open with all of, and have been broken and cracked open with this diagnosis. And I need to take my mother and I to a place where we will be held through it, AKA mother nature. I also think that is quintessentially my mother's legacy of mothering coming through the pages of this book. That she, that the demonstrative care, um, that this isn't a story that is just brutal or sad or or depressing or a very hard read it it does have elements that touch upon the edges of that but ultimately I think there's a holding that's woven into it and there was as I was writing it it felt that kind of carried us through and and, it, and isn't that really the question of our especially the last three years you know what will hold us? Who will hold us? How will we allow ourselves and our communities to be held as we move through pain, as opposed to just, oh my gosh, look at that pain. 
I think it's the evolution of the question. I think that's where we need to expand our own sense of perhaps con connection and community, maybe our sense of imagination even. Um, but asking the question, you know, there's, there's two, there's a question of what is painful. And then there's a broader question of what will hold us through the painful things. And, and I think there's a lot in this book about that. I love that question, what will hold us or who will hold us? And it seemed to me, because I was reading quotes from a number of other authors in this book, um, I imagine that some of these authors held you, Mary Oliver, you've got, you know, Marie Howe, you've got all of these really wonderful and really prescient quotes um, by really wonderful writers. And I guess my first question is, apart from Mother Nature and and seeking that in, in your own mother, too, are these authors authors who held you during this writing process? Absolutely. I mean, this this speaks to what is eldership? What will hold us? Who is willing to tell the truth while also contributing to a conversation of hope? And, and I, I think about um, Mary Oliver, I think about Marie Howe, I think about Terry Tempest Williams, I think about Sue Monk Kidd, I think about Barry Lopez, I think about Joseph Campbell. I mean, these are all, all people that are, you know, woven into this book in a, in a large way. And I, I do think about that, you know, as a person who is losing their mother, I kind of refuse to lose myself as a daughter. And so I will continue to step into my own evolution and maturation and, and adulthood and wisdom that's within that. And I think I will never stop searching for um, the, the sources, the wellsprings of parenting, of eldership, uh, Joy Harjo, you know, I, that, that, are, that are among us. And I feel like their words, you know, it's, it's interesting as talking about this, I can al almost see them as a tapestry that, that a, a, a net that has been holding me, not just through the writing of this, but, you know, for, for a decade prior, <laughs> um, as I've, as I've stepped into that. And that's really, truly what I'm looking for. Who are the people who are willing to tell a radical kind of truth about what they're seeing in the world? And that isn't always pretty at the same time as, engaging in a conversation of uh, courage, hope, bravery, what will hold us now. Lineage is such a large part of the, the conversation about literature. And so it, it makes a lot of sense that you would include, again, these other voices. Um, I want to quote Mary Oliver, who in, in the book you quote as writing, attention is the beginning of devotion. And then again, Marie Howe, who wrote, it hurts to be present. And these quotes appear at different points in the book, um, but they feel not not dissimilar. Um, they both feel like, you know, kind of philosophically part of a, a larger whole. And I'm wondering if you can connect those two ideas and how they they kind of shine in the book for you. Yeah, yeah, that's really an astute observation attention is the beginning of devotion and it, and it hurts to be present. I mean, this, this goes to, I think my work as a person who spent a decade plus inside of the coaching landscape, which, which edges up upon, you know, the therapeutic world and the world of trauma and the nervous system. And I'm certainly not an expert in that world, but it, you know, I'll borrow this, you know, from somebody who is uh, another author and, and uh, therapist named Matt Licata. And I'm going to mess this up. It's not a direct quote, but he talks a lot about, um, our desire in our society to 
find ways to remove discomfort. Like when the discomfort is removed, then we will be okay. When the uncertainty becomes certain, then we will be okay. And his work centers on the flip of that, of it is not about the removal of discomfort and the removal of uncertainty. It's actually about increasing our capacity, increasing our level of comfort inside of discomfort, right? So this speaks to the idea that it's a painful thing to endure a moment, to be present. But the more and more we can endure that without the bracing, releasing slowly but surely that bracing, becoming more and more comfortable in that place, the more and more that's the devotion. That's where this that's where the mystical appears. That's where the knowing and the intuition is. That's where answers surface without us having to kind of dig endlessly through our own thought patterns to get there. And so I think I think they're directly related um, in a way that most of our society you know, wants us to avoid. And, and I have become a big believer, not necessarily in diving into those places, because that can overload a person, but, but to the, the slow and gentle wade and titration into that uncomfortable place to be. This goes right back to, as, as I mentioned, my work as a, as a coach, you know, over a decade in that field, but, but even earlier than that, the seeds were planted in my life as an endurance athlete, like my twenties, you know, the first book that I wrote, um, that really taught me about flow states in a physical level. What is the amount of comfort I can have with this level of discomfort, physically speaking as an athlete? And, and that has become something that's a direct translation into the creative life, into the writing life, into the landscape of grief now, um, which is really, really serving. I think that scans so much with this kind of way that I felt while reading this book, right? I think I called it anticipation, but I think the word that I was searching for was discomfort. I was very uncomfortable while reading this book. Um, and I think your book teaches your readers how to read it. You you are teaching your readers how to sit with the discomfort. How does then discomfort relate to surrender or control? How does it feel to surrender? This is the lesson of my lifetime. That is the that is the thing I personally am wrestling with is control and surrender. And my desire to feel like I know what the plan is and I know what is going to happen and I know I can control these various um, outcomes or variables, et cetera. And my ultimate realization that I am not in control and how do I then discern the difference between surrender and giving up? You know, we are taught that connection specifically and intimacy, and I don't mean necessarily romantic or sexual intimacy, just our ability to be in proximity to a thing is intimacy, right? This is my, my ability to be close to this thing, whether this thing is a person, a role, an emotion that I'm feeling, a sensation in my body, et cetera. My ability to be in proximity to this thing, a lot of us have been, have been taught that, that intimacy or connection with that means controlling it. But for me, that felt sense of surrender, of I am okay with 
I am existing with, I am in proximity to this thing and I can feel myself in a pattern of flow or regulation or neutrality in my body. There's not really a charge up or down. I can feel myself feeling this thing. And that to me feels like a beautiful kind of surrender, a beautiful kind of invitation to be with, to sit with. So that could happen with my mother's diagnosis. That could happen with my own That was anger. memoirist oh, Steph Jagger talking about everything left to remember out now from Flatiron Books. Look for more information about Steph at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell. Our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.